0: Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. The Appalachian region is a 205 square mile area that follows the spine of the Appalachian mountains from southern New York to northern Mississippi. It includes all of West Virginia and parts of 12 other states. 42% of the region's population is rural, compared to 20% for the rest of our nation. The downturn beginning in the mid-90s in coal mining brought economic hardship and disability to the region. And, as the ranks of high opioid-prescribing doctors grew with the number of -of out-of-work coal miners on disability, Purdue Pharma targeted the region for the launch of their new, time-released opioid, OxyContin. By the late 90s, Appalachia had become a canary in the coal mine for the opioid epidemic. So, it was a logical choice for the Justice Department's new innovative pilot program for collaboration between state, federal, and local agencies. In October, the criminal division of the Justice Department created the Appalachian Regional Prescription Opioid Strike Force, or ARPO, whose mission is to identify and investigate healthcare fraud schemes in the Appalachian region and surrounding areas and to effectively and efficiently prosecute medical professionals and others involved in the illegal prescription and distribution of opioids. Joining me today from the Justice Department is Joe Beemstabor, who is the Senior Deputy Chief of the Fraud Section. So, Joe, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's a a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Okay. So, let's start with how did this idea come about to create the Appalachian Regional Prescription Opioid Strike Force? Boy, that's a mouthful.
1: It is. It is. uh, What we call ARPO for short. Um, The genesis of ARPO was, was somewhat twofold. I think we need to step back a little bit to understand within the fraud section, which houses ARPO, exists the healthcare fraud unit and what traditionally known as Medicare fraud strike forces. Um, and those were at the time before the launch of ARPO, um, strike forces operating in approximately 14 to 15 federal districts around the country. Um, and they, the concept was is in those districts, you would have fraud section trial attorneys, criminal division prosecutors, AUSAs from those districts, dedicated HHS agents, DEA, FBI agents, all prosecuting um, uh, healthcare fraud in those districts, and that was launched approximately 2007. Um, and the basis to do that was was the this model of of prosecutors and agents
0: working directly together, focused just on healthcare. So the genesis of ARPO was back in 2017. The FDA, the DEA, HHS, state AG offices, Medicaid fraud units, the Bureau of Workmen's Comp. State Board of Pharmacy and State Medical Boards all began to collaborate to target illegal prescribing and distribution of opioids from the medical profession.
1: But also a core model was the use of data analytics. Um in in infancy in a very rudimentary way using data analytics in two thousand seven, but then using it more in a more sophisticated way for the last ten years, identifying those worst actors or worst schemes in the healthcare fraud system. Um, targeting those schemes and those individuals um, with data analytics as a jumping off point and then using traditional law enforcement techniques. So the idea would be to prosecute those individuals, the worst actors, generally medical professionals, owners, and operators, using a model of focused resources and data analytics to target them, investigate, and then um, prosecute and convict them and remove them from the system from harming patients or defrauding the public FISC. And that was at the core of the healthcare fraud unit, successful program with our U.S. attorney partners around the country, um, charging anywhere between two to 300 individuals a year, several billion dollars in fraud. Um, recent analyses have shown that this program saves Medicare on average about $5 billion a year uh, over uh, uh, the life cycle of, of, of about 10 years. So it's a hugely successful program. At its core, though, was focused resources and data analytics. And when Brian Benchkowski, the assistant attorney general, um, was sworn in. Um, he his, one of his his um, core priorities was how are we handling the opioid epidemic um, and handling that in our in both as a criminal division and in our strike forces. And we had walked through him the success of the healthcare fraud model, and he believed early on that it would be able to pivot and, and could be applied to the illegal prescription of opioids. And as we worked with the A. G. Brian Benchkowski, we were showing him how we were using the model in existing strike force cities like Houston in Miami. And so taking those successes um, and using the data analytics and prosecuting corrupt doctors who are legally prescribing opioids there was a key case in Houston um, that led to the conviction and I believe a 20-year sentence, um, we began to pilot then develop a deployment plan for how we would then apply these analytics and this model of prosecution in the Appalachian region. At that early stage of summer of 2018, um through Brian's leadership, then the fraud section begins outreach with our partners at HHS, DEA, and FBI, traditional law enforcement partners with the Medicare Fraud Strike Force, getting them on board and buying in that, listen, we would like to um, pivot and do work in the Appalachian region that encompasses about 10 U.S. attorney's offices, getting their buy-in and in the model and the infrastructure that would pivot to, to be um, put in that region. We then, through then the, the plan was um, approved by the Assistant Attorney General and then AG Sessions, we began outreaching um, in quick succession, meeting directly in the field with the 10 U.S. Attorney's Offices involved in ARPO, explaining the model and the use of daysal analytics and how we believed we could be force multipliers in that district, targeting the worst prescribers in their district. And so that's, that's the genesis of the plan through the summer of 18, and that brings us to about November of 2018.
0: So let's stop and pivot and break that down just a little bit. The data model, this relies very heavily on analytics. Can you dig into that a little bit and share with us what that really means?
1: Sure. You know, I certainly can't go into all the algorithms and all the specifics about the data analytics, but we had become sophisticated in our use of data analytics within the fraud section and in Medicaid, at that time, Medicare and Medicaid claims data, for example, seeing which doctors billed for over 24 hours a day, which doctors were prescribing in the healthcare context, every patient had the same prescript, the same services they needed. No one ever got better. So these what we did was develop different red flags that could be applied to the opioid um, um, illegal prescription context and using data of CMS data, which is Medicare data, prescription drug monitoring data from the, the local... Um, states, um, publicly available CDC data, any analyzing those individuals and those prescribers that were prescribing outside a normal me- course of medical practice.
0: They use Medicaid claims data to target doctors who billed over 24 hours a day and those who prescribed the same thing for their patients and never got them better.
1: And so that's how we began to analyze the data and cut the data and come up with different um, red flags to say, who are the worst outliers in these this region of the country? It was the first for the criminal division, the first case in which we investigated and the investigation took about only two to three months involved undercover operations and becoming a sophisticated use of data analytics from investigation to prosecution to indictment was about three to four months. And then there was a trial and then a, a retrial and then with all within one year period, the individual was convicted legal prescription, I think, of around between one to two million pills. And that's part of the model. Um, Our part of the model is the data analytics, coupled with dedicated agents, experienced agents, as well as experienced prosecutors handling um, data, and also understanding how how to investigate and prosecute those medical professionals that are committing crimes. That inherent expertise allows the prosecutors and allows through this model to move faster and faster, and in, in first in the healthcare setting, you've got Medicare spinning up millions of billions of dollars on a daily basis. You want to move quickly to stop that fraud. Applying that same bottle to the opioid epidemic, the goal was to stop the illegal prescriptions as fast as possible. People are overdosing. People are dying. People are becoming hooked on drugs. You're impacting community. So the same concept was stop the Medicare dollars going out fast. Pivot now, stop the pills from going out fast, and to do it as fast as possible. The idea was not to have a one to two year investigation on a doctor when over that time period, he's going to push out 2 million pills. If we could do the goal, and, and this was through Brian Benchkowski's leadership and the U.S. attorney's leadership it, on the ground was the quickest way we can, we can um, meet our burden of proof, charge an individual and prosecute that individual, even if it's a subset of illegal prescriptions, was going to be appropriate because that got those individuals to stop. And the goal is to get these people from stopping to prescribe.
0: So as part of this initiative, you got several groups to collaborate that probably weren't used to collaborating. They're used to working in silos. So the FBI, for example, is working with HHS and the DEA and Medicaid fraud control and so forth. What challenges did you face in the early going of getting this collaboration up and rolling?
1: It was certainly a challenge. Um, but there was an infrastructure of relationships and trust that had existed between DEA, FBI, HHS OIG, MUFUKU, and the Fraud Section Criminal Division for years. And that had build, been built up through years of working together on the Medicare Fraud Strike Forces. So you had an infrastructure of trust and collaboration we would meet um, on a monthly basis with the partners on the, on the Strike Force program. So you had a lot of really top-of-the-line uh, professionals in each of the agencies already working collaboratively. The, the, the challenge became moving into a different region of the country of which we had not operated before, many of us, um, certainly H H F and FBI had resources in the district, but not part of a strike force program, but the criminal division had not operated through 10 districts in the Arbor region. And so what the core of what we needed to do was the direct outreach through the criminal division, uh, myself. Robert Zink, Matt Miner, the Deputy Assistant Attorney General, and Brian Benchkowski meeting directly with each US attorney on the ground through November and December, um, working with them, saying, listen, these are our ideas. Um, this is the idea of the attorney general and of the AAG. We think we can be multi- force multipliers with additional resources partnering with you on cases. Um, and that made, and, and quite frankly, we met with 10 over the course of two to three weeks on a repetitive basis, all these US attorneys' offices. And certainly, there were certainly people that would be skeptical. We had never met them before, but that was okay. What our job was to say, listen, we are an organized group. We had um, plans for how we would deploy this, plans for how we would use the data. And we just had very honest conversations on how we could use each other's best ideas to prosecute these individuals. We had a model, but we wanted to be flexible to each district. And each U.S. attorney was, at the end of the day, receptive to help their communities get these work actors out. And though it was a lot of man hours and a lot of relationship building and and quite frankly, all of us kind of living in the Appalachian region from October through the initial surge of of April of 2019, um, it really paid off in building trust in each of those offices that we just hadn't known each other before.
0: Within your first few months of operation, the strike force brought charges against 60 individuals, including 53 medical professionals, involving about 350,000 prescriptions for 32 million pills to 24,000 patients. How was the strike force able to put these cases together, again, I'll go back to this, so quickly when the others, you know, uh, other investigations have taken years? What's the secret to that, Joseph?
1: I think it's, I think there's a number of answers to that. I don't think it's a secret, but I think you had a lot of momentum. I think you had really strong leadership. And I think that at, to start off, and it's repetitive to say that from the criminal division, Brian Benchkowski and the attorney general, but you had direct commitment and buy-in from the HHS leadership, DEA leadership, um, Mufuku leadership, all across the board, but you had... Real buy-in from the US attorneys' offices. Each US attorney bought in and said, Listen, we are doing great work here already. You are going to have more resources to this, and collectively and collaboratively, we're going to do more. And so it it, it can be a cliche to say, oh, this is the government and everybody's moving in one direction. But this really was an opportunity, and I think it was a lot of a, a proud moment for all of us involved. You had different disparate agencies and prosecutors from around the country surging in in one direction in a very short period of time to move in a direction on complicated cases. These are difficult cases um, that target illegal prescribing by doctors in, in many rural parts of these, these areas. Um, that was a challenge, but it was, we were received well by the U.S. Attorney's Office, and, and we learned from one another. And although it's four or five months, it was, a, it was a breakneck speed by their office and our office to get these people out of the system.
0: Early on, the strike force had a great deal of success with convictions. In one case, a doctor who is alleged to have been the highest prescriber of controlled substances in the entire state of Ohio was charged with operating an alleged pill mill in Dayton. According to the indictment, the pharmacy allegedly dispensed over 1.75 million pills during a two-year period alone. In another case, a doctor was operating a clinic that focused on pain management allegedly providing pre-signed blank prescriptions to office staff who then used them to prescribe controlled substances when he was away from the office. In still another case, a solo practitioner who operates a five-clinic family practice focusing on pain management allegedly billed Medicare for urine testing that was not done and for urine testing that was not medically necessary. In still another case, a dentist was charged for alleged conduct that included writing prescriptions for opioids that had no legitimate purpose. In fact, he wrote those prescriptions after removing teeth unnecessarily and scheduling unnecessary follow-up appointments and billing inappropriately for his services. In yet a final case I'll mention here, a doctor was charged for allegedly prescribing opioids to Facebook friends who would come to his home to pick up prescriptions and for signing prescriptions for other purpose or other persons based on messenger requests to his office, who then allegedly delivered the signed prescriptions in exchange for cash. These were all brought in with the assistance of the FBI, the DEA, HHS, and the Kentucky Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. Assistant Attorney General Brian Benchkowski said, Medical professionals who violate their solemn oaths and peddle opioids for profit should know that we will find you and ensure that the justice system treats you like the drug dealer you are. So, as you know, Joseph, over the last 20 some odd years since the opioid epidemic began, medical professionals caught peddling opioids for profit rarely got more than a slap on the wrist, and very few spent time behind bars. So how is the strike force going to change that overall trend?
1: What I would speak to is this, I think, in the early days of the healthcare fraud strike forces, we had early success prosecuting doctors. But part of that, and prosecuting corrupt doctors, and, and I should preface it to say, listen, 99.9% of doctors are good in doing the right thing. These are the outliers. In the healthcare fraud context, we're targeting the outliers that are harming the patient and stealing from federal taxpayer dollars. In the opioid context, there are legions of good doctors treating pain around this country. That's not what this initiative was about. It was taking the corrupt individuals out of the, the system. But early on in the healthcare fraud context, you may have seen lower sentences. And, and you would see lower sentences in Miami, whether it was Brooklyn, Los Angeles, Houston and Chicago and Detroit. Over time, though. I believe there was a real, became a real understanding between the judiciary and those districts. And, and frankly, as more cases were brought, there was more publicity on the, the the tremendous impact corrupt medical professionals in the healthcare setting could have on patients, patient harm cases. You had patients, out, a doctor out of Detroit prescribing, um, people prescribing cancer medications for individuals that didn't have cancer, not only defrauding the public fifth, but harming patients. Um, once those cases started to be brought to the light around the country, you saw the sentences start moving up. Um, That has a massive deterrent effect in those districts. We've seen the cost curve of Medicare bend downward in certain districts because taking out the illegal, the corrupt medical professionals removes the worst actors, but billings actually can go down in certain cities, even though cost curves on Medicare generally go up. So we knew that we could have an impact in those districts. We knew we already did on the healthcare side. The pivot now is beginning that process again in the the Appalachian region. That that sentence I talked about in Houston was actually 35 years for a doctor for illegal prescribing opioids in Houston. That will have a deterrent effect in that location, without question. These prosecutions will have a deterrent effect on other individuals. They may stop and say, listen, I'm not prescribing anymore. And, And for whatever reason, they stop doing that. The illegal prescriptions, that's a good thing. And so we will have harsh, the sentences will come, but the convictions and pleas so far, I think, tell a strong tale. We indicted about 73 individuals in the last year. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary. 23 of those, those individuals have pled guilty, even before trial. That tells you, I think, that the strength of these cases, um, but also that sends a message that these people are being held accountable. And we want others in those communities to see that. And it's, it's something that is very important to the criminal division and the U.S. Attorney's Office community who we
0: partner with. Often these bad actors are rather crafty in their criminal behavior and how they disguise it. What are some of the more notable busts that you've had over the course of the life of this initiative?
1: So certainly not, I, I can't speak to any ongoing cases and don't want to comment on cases specifically, but we've, we've seen a lot of cases where it, you, you, you have the traditional pill mills, but they get the, the escalation point is so fast. You have one million pills going out in a rural community by one doctor. The amount of damage that will wrought in a in community is just is, is catastrophic. And so those were the type of doctors we wanted to make sure we captured in this sweep. And there's, there's doctors throughout these cases and throughout this region that fit that mold. Um, we've seen a lot of doctors abusing their privileges, trading sex for the illegal prescription of pills. Um, I can't think of more worthy cases than those individuals. And that was a recent conviction uh, we've had in the Western District of Tennessee. Those were the facts alleged and proved at trial. Um, So we've seen a lot of those cases. We've seen the the illegal distribution of opioids where the doctors are not seeing the patients and just leaving scripts. And these these are, remember, these are hydrocodone. These are oxycodone. These are really intense pain pills that cause addiction and then cause other, you know, will cause other harm to communities when these individuals get um, addicted. And so those are a lot of the common themes we've seen out through this this region we've been operating in for this year now.
0: In one of the press releases, I also read that uh, you found cases where doctors would sign prescription pads and just leave them out for their employees to completely fill out, so they're blank except for the signature on them, and other employees are able to fill them out?
1: Yes. And, and so there's that in those cases, you know, that's a scenario. There's absolutely no medical care. There's no treatment of the patient. There's no idea that the tr- patient's going to get better and they've got real pain to be treated. It's just at that point, just a drug deal. Our portfolio though, is is quite frankly focused on those, the doctors, elite, the, the medical professionals illegally prescribing, illegally distributing, the pharmacists illegally distributing, dispensing. Um, I think that's a real critical part of the scheme. It's, it's not, it, it's the doctor's, at the head of the system, but you need the, you need the pharmacist to be involved in it to legally dispense. And so that's the real core function. You certainly see parts of this where you've got a legal theft, but the cases that we're seeing where the legal prescription is several hundred thousand pills or a million pills, those are the legal prescriptions by the doctors. And that becomes the real focus of uh, of what we're seeing.
0: What else should we know about ARPA?
1: I, I think it's, I think two points. I think that it's a commitment um, and I think it's a success story right now and how government can work. Um, and, and a lot of actors with a do- different portfolios from prosecutors to the agencies can work and move in one direction um, and help one another. I think the other part of ARPO that was we spent a lot of time on was um, if we were going to arrest 60 individuals all on the same day in April and involve 10, you know, several thousand patients, drug addicted patients. We kept. We asked ourselves early on, what would be the impact of the community if you took the pill mill out, but you had the patients still drug-seeking patients moving around the area? And that caused great concern, and it caused the Assistant Attorney General and the U.S. Attorney's concern about these patients that would show up at the pill mill that they looking for their pill, the prescription for the pills, but have nowhere to go. And so we spent a, a lot of time planning with our partners, FBI, HHS, the CDC, and, and principally state and local partners, health agencies at the local level. Making sure that we had health professionals on site at each medical location for which the doctor had been arrested that morning, to make sure that there was continued access of care for those patients. They were directed to legitimate doctors that could help them, or they were then, or they were then shifted to or treated that day. Um, the CDC was instrumental in having on-site, uh, scattered throughout, mobile units that could treat patients the event of overdoses or potential overdoses. Um, And I think that was part of a success story that we were very proud of too, continuing the access of care and doing what we did on law enforcement side on a responsible way, understanding that many of these patients would need help that day. And I think that was something we were very proud
0: of. That's impressive. Before we close, in the news today from Charleston, West Virginia, which is located in the heart of the Appalachian Regional Prescription Strike Force Territory, a proposed settlement for $1.25 billion with the drug industry was announced. Now, this would be the first of its kind. You've studied the impact of opioid dumping on that region and probably know it better than just about anybody else, you know, it firsthand. Is $1.25 billion enough for this region?
1: I certainly can't comment on that settlement. I'm not familiar with the settlement that just came out today. Um, I will say, though, for that region, um, we've, the criminal division's devoted a number of resources to that region to help prosecute these these doctors. I will tell, there's really strong leadership from Mike Stewart. He's the assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of West Virginia. The U.S. attorney himself really cares about this epidemic. They're really passionate about it. Um, has welcomed the criminal division in, um, and so I think that community is well served by by his leadership and in bringing more resources in in you know, separate than the settlement of which I can't speak. There's been a number of success stories recently of doctors who have been removed from the system, pleading guilty um, by by the collaborative work we're having there as part of the strike force program. Um, and I will say this, I said, you know, I, I think we've always in, in the department and, and health officials, there's not one answer to this epidemic. Um, it's, it's multiple answers and all hands on deck. Uh, within the criminal division, we're doing what we do, really well in focusing our resources in this direction and having an impact the same as the US Attorney's Office, but there are civil there's folks in the civil division, other US Attorneys offices, state and local partners, all moving in the right direction. And so our is just one element, I think, of the department's plan and the administration's plan on how to combat this epidemic.
0: Well Joseph, I want to thank you today for, uh, for your time in introducing us to uh, this new initiative, which is really making a huge difference in the region in the Appalachian region. So thanks, Joseph.
1: Thank you very much for having me and highlighting the, the, the good work that we're all trying to do around the country. Thank you.
0: My guest today from the Justice Department has been Joseph Beamstabor, who introduced us to the Appalachian Regional Prescription Opioid Strike Force, or ARPO whose new analytics-driven collaborative has resulted in charges to remove bad actors from the medical community in months rather than years. In fact, within the first few months of operation, the strike force brought charges against 60 individuals, involving 350,000 prescriptions for 32 million pills. To learn more about ARPO, go to Cover2.org. My name is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's cover, the number two, and resources. As always, thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you.